the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Acts. Put in place certain measures and safeguards and accountability to help safeguard our own hearts against just being absorbed into the immoral culture in which we live as well. Because we're to be in the world, but not of it. And so we have to be intentional about this. And I think that's exactly what Paul was doing. He was being intentional about his relationship with Christ. And he wanted to do what it took to be distinct and separate rather than becoming just like everybody else. There are times in life where you have to take a stand against something. You may not agree with it, or you have a personal conviction that prevents you from participating in an activity or an event. In today's teaching, Pastor Gary expresses how the Apostle Paul dealt with this while he lived in the city of Corinth. It wasn't an easy place to stand apart from the cultural norms. But how is this any different from today? And what measures are you taking to stand apart from the culture that's pressing in on you? At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Acts chapter 18 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. God's in control and God's got everything under control and everything's going to be fine. This is a word of great comfort and encouragement to Paul. So he realizes, all right, God's, God's got his own people here. And so I'm going to be safe and I'm going to be taken care of. And he stays there for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Verse 11 says, teaching them the word of God. Why is it important that we are studying and teaching the Bible? Because that's what we see always modeled through the Bible is the importance of the Bible. So we spend a great amount of time teaching the Word of God. Verse 12. And this is an important historical note here. While Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, this is how we know that Paul's missionary journey, the second one, was between the years 51 to 53 AD, thereabouts, because, verse 12, Galileo was proconsul of Achaia. In 1905, just in the turn of the 20th century, there was an inscription discovered at the ancient Greek city of Delphi, and on that inscription, it spoke of Galileo, being the proconsul of Achaia in the year 51 and 52. So 
those kind of historical archaeological pieces is what helps us to date things like Paul's second missionary journey. We know the year now since the discovery in 1905. It's called the inscription at Delphi, which, which detailed the, 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 um, the rule of Galileo as proconsul of the region of Achaia. But here we have some Jews, again, not liking what Paul is doing. They go before Galileo. They make charges here. This man is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And so verse 14 says, just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, this guy's a Gentile. He's like, you know, I, don't, I don't understand all the Jewish stuff. He says, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. And then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Galileo showed no concern whatever. So here's, here's the scene. Galileo's like, you know what? I don't, I don't get your whole Jewish law, kosher. I don't even get it. So forget it. I'm not deciding this. You guys settle it on your own. And they're like, all right. Let's just go beat up the first person we see. And it says they start pounding a guy named Sosthenes, who's the synagogue ruler. Now, wait a minute. I thought Crispus, the serial guy, I thought he was the synagogue ruler earlier. Yes, in fact, he was the synagogue ruler. The implication is Crispus lost his job because he became a believer. Sosthenes is the new ruler of the synagogue now. But you know what's interesting? Again, the Bible is the best commentary in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul commands Sosthenes as a brother in Christ. So apparently, this guy becomes a believer later too. Because Crispus is actually somebody that Paul mentions by name in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as one of the only couple of people that he baptized by water. In 1 Corinthians 1.14, Paul says that he baptized Crispus and Gaius, and some even believe that Gaius is a reference to the guy... Uh, Tidius Justus, whose home they met him, that they believe his name might have been Gaius Tidius Justus, and that those are the guys that Paul baptized by water. Now, here's something else for people who make the argument. It's a, it's a wrong argument, but they make the argument that baptism is required for salvation. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, I thank God I didn't baptize any one of you except for Crispus and Gaius. Now, what he's saying the reason he's saying that, when you look at the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because people were starting to elevate Paul and Apollos as different people who were important and special. And so Paul is addressing the fact that, listen, we're just vessels. He says, who is Paul and who is Apollos? We're just vessels, people, that God works through and uses. And that's why then he says, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius. And the reason he's saying that is because if I, can you imagine if, if he had baptized a bunch of the people at Corinth, they would have been like, well, who baptized you? Silas, you know who baptized me? Paul, the apostle Paul. That's right. Paul signed my baptism certificate. Sorry, it was only Silas for you. It was Paul for me, you know? And they'd be going around doing all this. So that's why Paul says, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius because it was all going to your head that you were elevating us as some people who were important. But I mention that also in the context of this. If baptism were required for salvation, 
There's many other verses I could point to, but that's a great context to remind us. If Paul, the great evangelist who was going around leading people to Christ, ends up saying, I thank God I didn't baptize all you people. It's a clear indication that baptism is not a requirement. Water baptism is not a requirement for salvation, friends. You can't add anything to the, to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross if you make it Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus speaking in tongues, Jesus plus circumcision. You have just now tainted the message of the cross. You've now made it a work system. You've now made the gift of God, which is a gift of grace that we accept through faith, a works-oriented system when you attach anything to the simple sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It is by grace are you saved through faith, and this the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So just wanted to mention that part out there, because that, that, that thing still circulates in some circles of the church, that baptism is a requirement. For, no, bat, water baptism indicates It is an external expression of an internal work that you have died to your old life and you've been raised to in in a in a new life with Christ, and that's water baptism under the water, out of the water. But it is not a requirement for salvation. It's a demonstration of what you believe in your heart. So back to our story here. Um, They turn, they beat up Sosthenes. Galileo stands there like, okay, whatever, you know, and he doesn't care. Showed no concern. Verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, and then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. And then, interesting here, it says, before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sancria because of a vow he had taken. So, you know, what's he doing cutting his hair here, and what does it have to do with the vow? Most Bible scholars believe that the vow that it's referring to is a Nazarite vow, a Nazarite vow. Here's a little background on the Nazarite vow. Now, if you were here in our study of Samson uh, in the book of Judges, you will remember uh, a reference that I made to the Nazarite vow. But for those of you who weren't, uh, the Nazarite vow is mentioned in Numbers chapter 6. And it is for three particular purposes. Number one, it was a voluntary vow of separation, consecration, and dedication to God. Okay. Let's say that you, uh, you wanted your life to be set apart for some special purpose for God, or you were maybe struggling with some area in your life and you wanted to get right with God. There was some specific intentional purpose, some, something that you were up to that you really wanted this, this time to be separated and consecrated and dedicated unto God. You could take a Nazarite vow. It was completely voluntary. No one was ever asked to take a Nazarite vow. It was offered as a way for you to just consecrate and dedicate and separate yourself unto God. Number two, it does apply to both men and women in Numbers chapter 6, although there's no example of a woman taking a Nazarite vow in Scripture. With Some would make an exception. Samson's mother took a voluntary abstinence because the Nazarite vow was on her son, and as she carried him in her womb... Um, she participated in some restrictions herself that some say she took a Nazarite vow. It's not all that clear, but certainly she, whatever she did, she did it because the scriptures were clear that her son, Samson, uh, was to be under a Nazarite vow from the moment he was born. And number three, it was usually for a set period of time. 
a day, a week, a month. I guess a day won't make your hair grow that long, so more than that. Uh, but sometimes uh, it was taken for a lifetime. And, and here is the, what would be the practices of a Nazarite vow. There were three. First was no wine, no fermented drink, or anything of the grapevine. Anything of the grapevine. No, not even grapes themselves. Not even jelly from grapes, okay? Nothing having to do with the vine. And the idea was because if you were going to be consecrated and separated unto the Lord, you didn't want anything that would risk potential intoxication. That you were to be completely sober-minded at all times. And so just so that there wasn't any confusion about when anything possibly fermented, when did it go from just being really bubbly to, to really knocking you out, God says, if you want to take the Nazarite vow, Numbers chapter 6, it was all part of this, you don't touch anything related to the grapevine. Nothing. Number two, there was to be no contact or closeness to a dead body. Under a Nazarite vow, you couldn't attend a funeral, couldn't walk through a cemetery. You had to refrain from being around any dead body. And then number three, there was no cutting of the hair. During the course of the Nazarite vow, for as long as it lasted... You were not to cut your hair. And that's not because there was power in, in the long hair, as some think about Samson. Because when Samson finally gave it up to Delilah and says, you know, if you cut my hair, you know, I'll be weak. And then she cut his hair and then he was weak. Uh, the power is not in the long hair. The hair was a symbol that you were consecrated and devoted unto God. The fact of the matter is that when Samson ended up divulging this information and she cut his hair, he, he had already given up his consecration to her. He had already given up his strength to her. So he ended up you know, being exposed for who he truly was. But there wasn't strength in the hair itself. But the long hair uncut was a reminder to you you're set apart, you're consecrated to the Lord. So no razor was to touch your hair. Some, again, Samson is an example of someone who was living under a Nazarite vow. Some believe John the Baptist in the New Testament was living under a Nazarite vow. The idea of being just very unkempt and, and disheveled and long hair and, you know, he's out there eating honey and locusts and all other kinds of things. He's got little locust wings coming out between his teeth. and So he's kind of a burly man and that's, that's the kind of the way that he was. But anybody could take a Nazarite vow, but these were the... These were the conditions, and these were the practices. So, when it says here that Paul cut his hair in Sancria, before he set sail, Sancria was a town right next to Corinth. It's a port city. So he's going to get on a boat, and he's going to go on his way back to, ultimately, Syria. But he's going to go by way of Turkey. He's going to go to Ephesus first, and then on to Caesarea, and then up to Syria. It says that he cut his hair because of a vow he had taken. So the indication is to us that while he was living in Corinth for these 18 months, he had taken a Nazarite vow. And so therefore his hair had gotten long. And when he leaves Corinth, he cuts his hair and it is now the end of his vow. His long hair was a reminder to him that he was consecrated unto the Lord. Now, why would he have possibly taken a Nazarite vow during the time that he was living in Corinth? Because of everything I already said about Aphrodite and the temple of Aphrodite and Corinth being a center of immorality and sexuality. Because it was such an immoral place. I'm personally convinced it doesn't give us the reason here why he actually took the vow. It just tells us he ended it. I'm personally convinced that Paul was living in the middle of such 
immorality that he decided the influence and the temptation even perhaps, okay, of all that is going around him required this vow so that he would be constantly reminding himself, I'm consecrated, I'm separated, and I'm devoted to God. And I think that he did it as a means of just some self-accountability and wanting to just be constantly watching and being aware of the bombarding influence of temptation of the culture of Corinth and wanting to be separate unto the Lord. And even though I'm living in the middle of this, I don't want to become like these people. I don't want to start doing what these people do. I want to live my life consecrated, separated, and dedicated to God. Now, it's not that a Nazarite vow in terms of all of these you know, particular points and practices are in play today, all right? But that said, what measures do we need to go to in our own lives to make sure that we're not just giving in to our own culture in our own day? And I think it's important for all of us to think about what are, what are some important safeguards in our own lives? What are some things that we are going to put in place as Christians because we don't want to get absorbed into the temptation of our culture? And so what are some practical things that we're going to do to just remind ourselves that we are people who are dedicated, consecrated, and separated unto God, and put in place certain measures and safeguards and accountability to help safeguard our own hearts against just being absorbed into the immoral culture in which we live as well. Because we're to be in the world, but not of it. And so we have to be intentional about this, and I think that's exactly what Paul was doing. He was being intentional about his relationship with Christ, and he wanted to do what it took to be distinct and separate rather than becoming just like everybody else. Ask yourself, do you look too much like everybody else around you, or are you distinct enough and separate enough that people can tell even from your life? that there's something unique and different about you that would speak about Christ just by the way that you live. Because if your life looks too much like everybody else's, I'm not sure what kind of testimony we can really have. So it's a good reminder to us. He shaves his head at this point, ends the vow, and then it says in verse 19, they arrived at Ephesus. I'm going to put the map back up here. So he's leaving Corinth now, and he's going to go over to Ephesus, which is now now we're back in, in Turkey. And um, or Asia Minor at that time. They arrived in Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. This is his MO always here. And when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. That's interesting. You know, he's like, there are some times where the Lord says, Terry, and there's sometimes the Lord says, you're not supposed to hang out here. You're done. And so he declines. But as he left, he promised I will come back if it is God's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus. And by the way, he is going to go back to Ephesus. We're going to see in chapter 19, not tonight, but he goes goes back to Ephesus. As he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus when he landed at Caesarea. All right, so let's look at a map here. They're going to go now over to Caesarea, which is now back in Israel. Caesarea on on the coast of the Mediterranean, beautiful city. He goes to Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church and went, then went down to Antioch. Now it says down because um, 
any place around the holy city of Jerusalem is down, but he's actually going to go north. So he goes north back up to Antioch, which is in Syria. And that's where he started this whole missionary journey. So this now is the end of his uh, second missionary journey. And in, starting in verse 23, he goes, it goes right into his third missionary journey. Verse 23, it says, after spending some time in Antioch, not very much, maybe a year at most, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So here's a map now for his third missionary journey. So he's going to start. He's going to go through the interior of Asia Minor or Turkey, strengthening the disciples. Verse 24, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, we're introduced to Apollos here, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. Notice that. He taught about Jesus accurately. He's thoroughly uh, versed in scriptures. He's very eloquent here. He's a learned man, but he's only been exposed to the baptism of John. So verse 26 says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. Because remember, they were left there in Ephesus. That's where the scene is happening in Ephesus. They hear him. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. I love that because there are a lot of people, and this is why we offer things like Christianity 101. You have a working knowledge, but you may not have an adequate working knowledge of who Jesus is. And some of the deeper things of the faith related to just scripture and doctrine. And so apparently here, Apollos, very learned guy, communicates very well, knew a lot of stuff about Jesus, but didn't know everything that he needed to. So guess what? Aquila and Priscilla invest in this guy's life. More indication why these people are are no doubt believers at this point for sure, whether or not they came as believers or Paul led them to Christ. They're now investing in Apollos' life. They are discipling him. And then verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, more specifically, really Corinth, that's the region, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Notice that. Proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Graham Scroge once said, if you cut the Bible anywhere it bleeds... Because all through the Bible, there are references to Jesus, veiled references and explicit references to Messiah that were ultimately all fulfilled in Christ. Apollos, as a Jew, is going around reasoning with other Jews, sharing scripture. Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent is Jesus. Exodus chapter 12, the Passover lamb is Jesus. Deuteronomy chapter 19, how God will raise up a prophet like Moses from his own people, is Jesus. Micah chapter 5, Jesus, the Messiah, will be born in Bethlehem. He fulfilled it. Zechariah 9, the Lord will come and display himself on a donkey coming into Jerusalem before his crucifixion. Jesus fulfilled it. Psalm 22, the Messiah will be crucified. Jesus fulfilled it. And on and on. This is what he's doing. All our Bible presents Christ in various ways from cover to cover. And Apollos is using the Word of God 
to explain to the Jewish people the truth of who Jesus is. And what a privilege we all have to prove from Scripture that Jesus was and is the Christ. Amen. The book of Acts is awe-inspiring as you see the Christian church take off. You see these frightened disciples who had scattered, rallied together, and then spread out beyond their borders. It takes great faith to do what these believers did, just like it takes great faith to spread the word today. How are you engaging with this series so far? Do you have any questions or concerns? If so, feel free to email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd be happy to hear your prayer requests too. Are you living in or visiting the Leesburg, Virginia area? We'd like to invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. You can find our service times and other information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and links to download our mobile app. Just look under the Teachings tab. Once again, that website is cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hearing some things from the book of Acts that we hope inspire you. We look forward to you joining us again here on Cornerstone Connection. J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.